Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. Okay, so here's how it was. I was sitting here talking <laughs> about the possibility of preparing for an alien invasion, about the Philadelphia experiment and Nikola Tesla, yeah. and David deserts me to see Radiohead. Imagine That's right. that. That's exactly correct. <laughs> I went for the good music. Sue me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, Radiohead is one of the few modern bands that I could listen to. Very few. So what Is could it I that say? and the Goo Goo Dolls? Or do you like the Goo Goo Dolls too, Gene? I, I haven't heard them. <laughs> I don't think you'd like them. I'm just, I'm just, I'm kidding around, buddy. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're going to have a special guest a little bit later in the show, Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project. Is there a smoking gun out there that proves UFOs are real? Well, Dr. Greer will talk about that. But right now, what I want to talk about is something that was discussed last week. Right. On the show. We had Brad Steiger, and he was here to talk about the Philadelphia Experiment in response to a letter from one of you listeners. And he gravitated to Nikola Tesla, who supposedly or allegedly was involved in the Philadelphia Experiment, and he misspoke, apparently. Well, yeah. I, Brad is tremendous fun to listen to. I, I had a great time listening to you two guys talk. It's obvious that you're old friends, and... Uh, there's a lot of familiarity there. So that was, it was fun, but had I been on the show, Gene, I would have probably stopped Brad a couple of times. There were, there were a couple of errors. One was kind of a big one, but not a big deal. Tesla, when he died, uh, he was 86 years old. He wasn't in his, in his mid forties. He lived a very long life and, um, pretty much died of old age. I mean, he had very severe chest pains a few days before he died. And uh, so, you know, one could surmise that perhaps his heart finally gave out at 86, you know, back in the 40s to be 86 years old was a pretty big deal. It's like being 110 today, I think. Pretty much. I mean, you know, it's, 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 well, 86 today is old. So Tesla was not a middle-aged man. He was uh, well advanced in his years. And I think an important thing to point out in linking Tesla to a lot of these things like a death ray, which he claimed to have plans to build a particle weapon that would essentially save the United States in the Second World War. The United States military apparently had little interest in pursuing this until after he died. And then, as Brad had pointed out, a bunch of his papers ended up missing uh, from the hotel room, a bunch of what people thought were very likely some of his research into that area. But it's important to qualify this gene by understanding that in the last maybe 20 years of his life, Tesla was really starting to lose it. He was really starting to lose his mind. And so we have to keep that in mind when we talk about any potential contribution that Tesla might have made to things like the Philadelphia experiment. I, I don't Personally, I don't think that theory holds much water. I don't know that Tesla at that point had anything that he could prove was working. Now, let's understand that Tesla... And again, this is I'm, I'm, I've always been fascinated by Tesla. So I've read a lot of the books that are out about him. I have the book that is the main collection of his writings and his theories. So I'm somewhat familiar with the work that he did. And, and really, the important thing to understand about Tesla is that in reality, he 
not Thomas Edison, is the father of modern electrical principles. The, the main electrical mode that we deploy today for the widespread dispersion of electricity, alternating current, AC, that was invented by Nikola Tesla, not Edison. Edison was actually a huge pro proponent of direct current, DC, which, as we know, is very useful for a variety of applications. Anything involving batteries is essentially direct current, but the real downfall of direct current is that it's very hard to transmit direct current over any significant distance. And that's what we really have to understand about Tesla. His research, and especially the research of his that's less well understood, was about wireless transmission of energy, of electricity, through the air, through the earth. This was the stuff that he was working on that, especially towards the end of his life, held all sorts of interesting promise for applications involving essentially the transmission of energy in the same way that we transmit today, uh, radio signals, television signals. And, and that's another important point, Gene, is that Tesla is really credited for being the father of radio, not Marconi. And in fact, just a year after Tesla died, the United States government changed the patents and it did indeed award Tesla what had been long recognized as the place of being the inventor of radio. All right, so where did all this eccentric <laughs> well, behavior begin, and why is he considered something of a paranormal figure? Well, Gene, it turns out that Tesla displayed all sorts of eccentric behavior from when he was very young. He was very sensitive to things like light and sound at a very young age. Uh, there are stories about when he was a teenager that he could hear the most minute sounds either miles away or even in the same building. He used to hear tr trains in the distance, and they would sound like they were right on top of him. So he always had this very fine sense of uh, sort of sensory input. He was oversensitive. It turns out years later in his life, he began displaying very obvious signs of obsessive-compulsive disorder, and it manifested in a number of ways. I mean, he, for example, he couldn't stand the touch of human hair, and this just drove him insane. He couldn't deal with germs. He was one of these people, kind of like the Jack Nicholson character in As Good As It Gets. You know, he was constantly washing. He would often wear these white gloves, no Michael Jackson pun intended, and he would, you know, toss the gloves after a week. He would never dine with anybody. He would always dine alone, and, you know, he'd have to have three napkins piled up next to him. In fact, it turns out he had a very severe obsession with the number three. The point being, Gene, that Tesla was a guy who walked that very fine line between genius and insanity. And so we have to take that into account, given that, you know, the last 20 years of his life, it's probably fair to say that Tesla really didn't come up with any work that was of any significance compared to the massive number of contributions he made to the field of electricity and to the fields of communications in what were really his golden years, the latter part of the 19th century. All right. Now, his relationship with Edison appears to be a fascinating story. Maybe oh, yeah. you can tell us briefly about that. Well, what ended up happening, it, it turns out that these two giants of the electrical world, who ended up becoming, in many ways, mortal enemies, 
uh, started as something different. When Tesla first came to the United States, the very first job he had was working for Edison, working in his office. And in fact, there's this story that really sets the dynamic between the two, which is that, as I said before, Edison was really the king of direct current. And what ended up happening was Edison had, was setting up Lower Manhattan with these direct current electrical systems. So there's a story about how J.P. Morgan's home was wired with Edison's direct current electricity. And because of the issues of transmitting direct current over any distance, this became a huge problem in terms of having to set up these repeater stations and these electrical distribution stations that would be way too close to people's homes. And also the fact that these... Um, this mode of delivering electricity just wasn't very secure. Fires would break out in homes. J.P. Morgan had a series of fires in his home that were directly related to him trying to have electrical lights. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, Edison was having issues with the efficiency of his direct current generators. And Tesla had walked in with a letter of recommendation had gotten a job working for Edison, and Tesla essentially undertook the redesign of these direct current generators to improve their efficiency. It took him a year, Gene, but indeed he did what he, what he told Edison he would do. He essentially took Edison's technology and he made it better. And the thing about this was that Edison had offered him $50,000. Now, you have to realize we're talking about, I think it was like the mid-1880s. We're talking about like 1884, 1885 is when Edison hired Tesla, and he offers him $50,000 if he could successfully redesign these direct current generators. That's like Tesla it's a couple of million dollars today at least. Oh, easily. I mean, can you imagine $50,000 in 1884? It's probably more like $50 million. That would be a high and, paycheck in Hollywood. Oh, it would be crazy. So Tesla does this, he improves the efficiency of these generators, and then he comes back to Edison, who I think was paying him probably $25 a week, or uh, I think it was $25 a week as a salary. I might be wrong about that number. I have to check that number. But anyway, Tesla says to Edison, I've done what you asked me to do. It took me a year. Where's my $50,000? And Edison reneged. Edison said to him, no, Tesla, you don't understand our American sense of humor I was only kidding, but I'll tell you what, I'll give you a $10 per week raise. And uh, Tesla apparently just absolutely melted down, walked out of the office, he quit on the spot. And as the story has it, he then for a couple of years ended up working digging ditches down in lower Manhattan. Ironically enough, ditches that were used to lay direct current cabling. So this then set the stage for Tesla to come back and form his own company, just a couple of years later, the Tesla Electric Light and Manufacturing Company, and this is where Tesla really undertook the invention of the alternating current electricity that we still enjoy today. All right, so that's the scientific aspect, and as you tell us, yeah. the last years of his life, he was losing it. Now we have, as they say, the scientific Nikola Tesla, and as you said earlier, in the last 20 years of his life, he was beginning to go off the deep end. So yeah. now, where are the areas where paranormal fans begin to look at Tesla as a compelling figure? <laughs> Well, I think part of that relates to the story about Tesla thinking that he had, was, had been receiving transmissions from some alien source 
I think Brad had alluded to that in the discussion you had with him. Uh, that story has been sort of twisted over the years to be that Tesla felt that he was getting his ideas from aliens, and then that kind of got branched off into the whole, you know, what secret technologies was Tesla working on that we still don't know about, which then relates to what happened when Tesla died. A bunch of his notes went missing from the hotel where he lived the last 10, 15 years of his life. It's very easy to glom onto these things because of the fact that to this day, we're still trying to understand some of Tesla's later work, specifically in the area of transmission of energy through the air and through the earth. You know, Gene, we have all these wireless technologies today for communications of data, but as you well know, the one technology that we really don't have in any kind of a way in the home is a wireless transmission of energy. I mean, we still deal with wall warts. We still deal with plugging things into an AC socket. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let's plug this in first. <laughs> You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Later on the show, we'll be talking to Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project about whether there is indeed a smoking gun that proves UFOs are real. Right now, we're talking about someone who became a very important figure in the paranormal field, Nikola Tesla. David? Well, I mean, ultimately, Gene... What we can say about Tesla's involvement in the paranormal world was that at the time that Tesla was alive, the things that he was doing were seen as being right on the verge of the incredible. And I think that set the stage for people looking back at Tesla. I mean, a good example of that was that Tesla, in his laboratory in lower Manhattan, he had wireless transmission of energy working such that you'd walk into his studio and he'd have these essentially these neon light tubes, which weren't connected to anything. He would flip a switch on one of his generators, and all of the lights in the room would light up. They weren't connected to anything. He would have these bulbs that he had invented that he'd walk around the room with, and they were lit up, and they, weren't, they had no physical connection to anything. Now, at the time, this was seen as being almost unbelievable. One of his closest friends, as it turns out, was the infamous writer Mark Twain who would basically go down and hang out in his, uh, in his uh, workshop. And Twain would tell people, if you want to see things that are not of this earth, come to Tesla's laboratory. You'll see the most amazing technologies. I mean, the fact that here's Tesla with a Tesla coil, millions of volts of electricity going through his body. Yeah, it's not hard to sort of take that image of Tesla and imagine that maybe, like, people joke around that Einstein wasn't human, that maybe Einstein was an alien. I think some of those same things have been attributed to Tesla. When we get into Tesla's later years, his proclamations that he had a technology that was essentially the first iteration of what today we know as a particle beam generator, a particle weapon, when Tesla claimed to have that, and, you know, he went to the United States government and he said, I have something that will give you ultimate power over the ability to stop the potential for war. An important thing to understand about Tesla was that he was incredibly anti-war. He had a vision of a peaceful humanity. And so he felt that 
Well, and again, does the theory really hold out? I don't know, Gene. If you have the ultimate weapon, does that make everything more peaceful? Well, we have the ultimate weapons of, you know, thermonuclear devices today. I don't think that's made the world any safer. But Tesla's heart was in the right place, I think. He never did show a real plan for a particle weapon. He never, certainly never showed any kind of a prototype for any such device. So as to whether or not there was a technology that he had that was going to leapfrog everything dramatically in terms of weapons technology, I think that's best left in the realm of speculation. There was nothing tangible along those lines the way that his alternating current theories generated incredibly tangible, incredibly relevant technologies. So why is it that he got such a reputation among the paranormal people? Well, because he's such a strange cat. He's a strange cat who had some stuff that to this day is still not understood. He supposedly is a story that he had set up this device, he created a, a device that could create magnetic resonance that would shake a building. Uh, the building in which he had one of his last labs in Lower Manhattan, he ended up experimenting with with this device that essentially almost brought the building down, and the cops came running down. You know, people in the building were reporting that there was an earthquake going on. And so <laughs> the cops come running down to his workshop, and he shows them some small device, and he says, with this device I could bring down anything. You know, we don't know really how he did this. We we have some theories about, you know, resonance, and we know things about resonance today that, indeed, you can really affect the integrity of a structure if you set up a resonance effect that essentially ends up creating an oscillation that becomes a feedback loop. Anyway, not to get into into that, but that device, for example, we don't have any prototype of it. We don't know what it was. When you take all of the man's early accomplishments, Gene, and you take his what was obviously a mental breakdown later in his life, and you combine those things together, you end up with an extremely mysterious, enigmatic character around which it's very easy to spin tales of conspiracy and intrigue and paranormal activity. I think that in many ways marginalizes what Tesla did. It's a discredit to him. I think we should concentrate on the meaningful, real scientific advances that he presented to society. And, you know, as far as any paranormal connection, as far as him being involved in the Philadelphia experiment, assuming there was such a thing, I think it's uh, it's conjecture, and I don't think there's much reality to it. I think it sells books. But uh, in many ways, as I said, I think it's a disservice to the memory of Tesla, and to the importance of his place in history as the true father of electricity as we know it today. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher. And here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA. Or they can write to us 
at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. So just a few minutes before we were ready to interview Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project, we learned the sad news that his mom had died, and he's got to take care, I guess, of arrangements and everything, so our sympathies go out to Dr. Greer and his family over that. But we asked a friend of ours from a magazine that I've known almost all my life, and that is Fate Magazine. We have Phyllis Scaldi, the publisher, and she is... I guess the descendant of a line of people who have put together this long-standing publication. First, Phyllis, thanks for coming in here and being a stand-in or a sit-in. Oh, sure. I'll be a walk-around in, too. But I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. We're honored to have you. Can you tell people who have heard of Fate Magazine, but maybe, just maybe, haven't had a chance to look at it further, how the magazine came to be? Sure. Fate Magazine started in uh, 1948, and really the essence of that uh, first issue was Kenneth Arnold's sighting. He was a pilot. He was flying around out in Washington and he, by Mount Rainier, and he spotted these uh, silvery disks uh, flying craft, and uh, that, that was the beginning of the whole UFO era. So Fate Magazine was right there. Now, it was started by Ray Palmer and Curtis Fuller. Yes. Now, you knew Curtis Fuller. You didn't know Ray Palmer, right? That is correct. Mm -hmm. I spoke to Curtis Fuller and, and his wife, Mary Fuller, a few times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the history of the magazine? Now, I know that they put this magazine out on the side while the, both Ray Palmer and Kurt Fuller were working for Ziff Davis Publications out of Chicago. So it had kind of an interesting background there. Do you have much information on how everything came apart? They were working for Ziff Davis, I believe, and uh, that was the era of the pulp science fiction. Right. And sensationalist, lurid stories, and uh, Richard Shaver was also uh, a, a popular, Ray Palmer was uh, friends with him and um, was running his stories about the hollow earth and all these incredible, fantastic stories. And I, I think Palmer just decided to go off on his own because there was some question or, or uh, not liking the direction he was going with, the, with the Richard Shaver. He was totally enamored with the with all the Shaver stories, because they sold. Of course. And I know that they had kind of a falling out in the 1970s, ladies and gentlemen, where Shaver and Palmer differed 
as to what might have caused Shaver's alleged experiences in the hollow earth. And that's another story. But how did you get attached with Fate Magazine? How did you acquire the publication? That's what I was wondering. Yeah. How did I get involved in this? Well, it was my fate. Bad pun. I was working, <laughs> I was working for Llewellyn Publications at the time. I started there like in the middle 80s, and they were like a large uh, metaphysical publishing house. And they decided to buy fate from the Fullers. The Fullers were, were nearing retirement, and uh, Carl Weske, the owner of Llewellyn, always wanted to buy a magazine or always loved magazines, so he negotiated to buy that. I was a book editor at the time, and then they realized that they needed more staff helping, so I became the managing editor of fate. And let me tell you, the managing editor does all the work. <laughs> they, they do everything. So I had a, a wonderful like a journeyman apprentice uh, working on the magazine, and then I wound up being the editor-in-chief. And then I decided to quit working for Llewellyn, and I started my own publishing company in the early 90s. And then in 99, they called me back because they were thinking about selling it, and they just wanted somebody to kind of babysit it for a few months until they had negotiated the sale. Well, they, they didn't find the sale, so I wound up buying it from them. Hmm. Here I am. It's a labor of love. <laughs> a greedy stepchild that takes all the energy, all the attention. But Phyllis, I have to believe that um, you have obviously a personal interest in this topic, otherwise you wouldn't have taken this risk, right? Oh, exactly. I, I love it very much. I was raised in a haunted house in North Dakota, so I was used to ghosts from a very early age. I you were raised in a haunted house? Yes. Oh, do tell. Well, every night when my bedroom, it was an old typical farmhouse of the Midwest, and every night when I would go to bed in my little bedroom off the living room, I would see this image standing in the doorway, and it scared me so bad. I was probably five years old. Every night I, I would see this, it's like something from Poltergeist or Ghost. It was just this, this image, this luminescent um, human figure. So I would just get up, close my eyes, run through that doorway, go jump in bed with my mom and dad, and I, you know, it must have been great for their marital life. They tried putting like a knife in the door and locking me out, and I was just like, just frantic freak because I could see this, and I thought it was something coming to hurt me or whatever. I was just terrified. How old were you again? At this About point? five years old. Okay, I understand. I think kids see ghosts up until uh, uh, at a very early age, and then we convince them that they can't, so they kind of shut that part of themselves. And incidentally, other people who have slept in that room have had a lot of bizarre experiences, too. I think that actually the doorway there was an actual vortex. But anyway, when I was 25 years old, then they told me that my grandfather died in that room. And hmm. I mean, if they would have told me that when I was little, I wouldn't have been so scared. Because a ghost that's a, that's a relative is uh, obviously there to look after you, like kind of a guardian angel. But I thought it was, I didn't know who it was. I just, this, this creepy, creepy ghost. And my mother, when she first got married, she would hear footsteps going up and down the stairs at night, too, when she was married back in the 30s. So even, even though people weren't looking for ghostly images, there were some strange things that occurred in that old house. Is that house still in the family, Phyllis? Yes, it is. Yes, it's kind of beat up, run down now. It's used as kind of like a hunting cabin when family deer hunters go up there. But actually, then we we used that room as kind of a rite of passage when we would come home and use it for kind of a camping place in the summertime. We would make strange the the new friends sleep in that room because they were sure to have an interesting experience. 
And really? Oh, yeah. And pretty much anybody who slept in their head, strange things happen. Gene, I think we're going to go need to. We're going to need to visit that room. I oh, think we're going to have to spend a night there with our instruments <laughs> and our cell phones at hand, so that when you are frightened to death, David, or is it, right, yeah, great, or I'm frightened well, to death, depending on our point of view. <sighs> well, I mean, it, if, if you know, listening to what Phyllis is saying, this is the kind of thing that you'll look for if you're trying to understand and research paranormal events and this is if this is that consistent gee phyllis i mean have you ever written about this for fate magazine probably not too much no huh. i have a lot of personal experiences strange things happened in that in that house in my what was originally my parents bedroom two of my real young nieces were staying there this was like back in the late 80s probably early 90s and uh, I was lying there with my arm out. It's a small bedroom. This old farmhouses were had small rooms. And I was lying there with my arm stretched out over the edge of the bed because I was on the outside and the little girls were on the inside closer to the wall. And all of a sudden, um, it was like somebody plugged me into an electric socket. Hmm. I was so scared. I mean, it hurt so bad. Have you ever touched a live wire when you're plugging in an extension oh, yeah. cord or something? A bad... It was worse than an electric fence, and, and I, I couldn't believe it. That scared the bejesus out of me, too, and I, I grabbed my arm and then turned around, and I didn't think I opened my eyes until daylight. But yeah, I still wonder to this day what had the power, what kind of an entity had that much energy to give me that hell of a shock just in that old farmhouse. It was a really, really puzzling experience. Jeez. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberger, David Biedney. We're talking to Phyllis Scaldi, publisher of Fate Magazine. Now, taking over a magazine with that prestige, that heritage, what does it feel like? It, it was a great honor, but I also felt very responsible, like, like we had to do the very best we can. When Llewellyn uh, owned the magazine, because they had such an extensive line of metaphysical New Age kinds of books, they kind of changed the the focus of the magazine. I mean, because they were they were the owners, they could do whatever they want. But there were some folks who felt that wasn't the right direction to go; that it should stay true to its its source or its origins of its roots. So, since we have purchased the magazine, we have tried to make it less new agey and more true reports of the strange and unknown, more factual, a little more objective. Yeah, more yes. like the original. Now, it had also reverted or changed from its digest size to full correct. size. Is this is one of the things you basically dispensed with. Was that also to bring it back to the way it was? That is correct, yes. So for 40 years, it was digest size, and then Llewellyn felt that they could uh, track more advertisers if they had it uh, full size, like Time and... and uh, Newsweek kind of uh, magazine, but the, yeah. the readers really didn't like it. So you went and back I, to the way it is. 
or the yeah. way it, you and became. That was a, a, scary, a scary step to take, but everyone is so much happier now with it, the readers, because they can put it in their pocket and they can store it on the, on the shelf and it stands up. It just makes more sense. What about the newsstands, though? Does that make it more difficult to get a presence on the newsstands because you're in that digest size? Not really, because you had to put it at the front of the newsstand. Ah. Ah, pretty sneaky. They, yeah. Yeah, they, they crabbed and hollered about that, the distributors, but really they it hasn't uh, affected it much. I would say that newsstand distribution across the board is not as good as it used to be. So how does a magazine now survive because of the fact that years ago we had all these newsstand distributors... And we had tons and tons of places where you can buy them. Today, most of the big cities and even a lot of smaller towns, the only place to get a decent selection of magazines is at one of those chain bookstores like Barnes & Noble or Porter's Books. And you don't have those specialty newsstands as much anymore. So what do you do? Get a lot of subscriptions or what? Yes. uh, Faith has always been mostly subscription-driven rather than newsstand. Uh, The newsstand is a small part of it. I mean, people complain if they can't find it on the newsstand, but it's so much uh, cheaper to get it through a subscription than it is on newsstand anyway. It's like less than half price to subscribe. And then the thing that people don't know about the way newsstand distribution works, and I don't know whether this is true or not, but in the old days you would get the entire magazine back if it didn't sell. Then they'd send you the covers. And now I gather they just have to send you a certification as to what they sold and didn't sell? That's right, an affidavit of return, just a sheet of paper, and they can write down whatever number they want on it. So. So there's no verification of that. That's that doesn't seem right. It's just an honor system. Oh boy. And, and say you uh, send uh, distributors six thousand magazines you sell through, maybe two or three thousand, and the rest are just pulped. They're just yeah. uh, destroyed. So it's kind of a waste, and it's I feel bad about the the waste of paper and the waste of money. So it's the subscription is much more efficient and practical because the folks want it. How does this magazine? today survive with the rise of the internet have you i know there's a website fatemag.com but do you put a lot of content on there yes we do we uh, we have articles every month on there uh, we have a huge website of information and we have radio interviews that are exclusive to our website we we do have a lot of articles on there and a lot of folks we've gotten i guess something like 10 million hits since the first of the year this year. So, you know, That's great. people visit our website a month free there. Indeed, indeed. So tell us, what are the hot-button issues that are filling the pages of Fate Magazine over the past few months? Well, it still seems like UFOs are, are a huge interest for folks. Whenever we have something dealing with UFOs, uh, uh, people are, are more apt to pick up the magazine on the newsstand. We have to have a variety of issues too, because some folks don't like UFOs, so they want uh, their their ghost ghost stories. Probably are are real, real key to the fate readers. What about things like cryptozoology issues yes, regarding cryptozoology. strange creatures? We have a few of those articles when there is something new, but we we like to kind of stay away from the mainstream because once you've something is mainstream, it's it's old news yesterday. <laughs> Yesterday's like stories. Have, uh, exactly. 
I thought it was interesting that huge meteorite that just hit Norway. The North yeah, just this week. Yeah, just this week that happened. They said it was. Uh, it released a tremendous amount of energy, but I guess nobody got hurt or anything, so that's good. No, no, just because it, it hit hit the mountainside, that that was kind of a, a unique. It was a strange one. Obviously, no strange creatures emerged from it, and this was not the crystal craft that Superman uses in the movie Superman Returns to go back to find the debris of Krypton, his home world. By the way, well, this also yeah. No, don't start in with the Superman stuff, you silly man. Well, there was also remember, Gene. I wasn't supposed to be alive right now, because there was that chunk of a comet that was supposed to hit the Atlantic on May 26th. So I, I was wondering if if that was the piece that that Frenchman said was going to create a huge set of tsunamis on the eastern seaboard of the United States. I guess it didn't happen. So maybe that wasn't the same piece. Phyllis, you were telling me when we had a little conversation in advance of this session that despite the fact that they are no longer among the living, Curtis and Mary Fuller still hang out. <laughs> yeah, what's that about? Well, that's, that's pretty neat. Um, we have uh, sensed the presence of the Fullers on several different occasions here, and uh, I, we do all the pre-press out of my home. The downstairs is transformed into an office area. And uh, John Zapanzik, our webmaster, was sitting down there alone one day at a desk, and he just about totally freaked out because he could uh, he could feel the fullers around him. He said that, and it's interesting because when I bought the magazine, I was like, yes, yes, this is exciting, this is fun, and I was like dancing out to the car, and then just 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 adrenaline rush, thinking about all the work and what I wanted to do with it. And it was like the fullers were kind of hovering over me as I was walking out to my car in the parking lot. And they were like, kind of like almost shaking their fingers, admonishing me, like, you better do a good job now. You better take care of this magazine. <laughs> and I was like, kind of cringed out, like, oh dear. Did you actually so, see them or just feel them? Uh, kind of, sort of both, yes. I mean, sometimes I see ghosts. Uh -oh. And, and I, I did kind of, kind of, not clearly. I mean, sometimes I've seen ghosts as clear as I see regular people. But hmm. sometimes they were just kind of uh, translucent. But they, they were above me. They were hovering above me, maybe five feet. It was, it was hmm. cool. But they were kind of, they were scolding me. And they've been around a few other times too here in, in the office. And looking over, it's still not, not thrilled, not excited. I mean, they're like serious people. They, they weren't silly or, or. Or jovial, or anything. They were more business-like. Yes, that's what I would say. There was like it was just more of a a left-brain kind of feeling from them. Just hmm. for the this is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at mrufo at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. <laughs> with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. For those expecting to hear Dr. Stephen Greer on our show, we were sad to learn of the death of his mom this week, and we hope everything is okay with him and his family. He'll be on a future episode, hopefully next week, on the PowerCast. And we graciously accepted the presence of Phyllis Gall, the publisher of Fate Magazine. If you go to FateMag, F-A-T-E, mag.com, because we don't want people to have to spell the whole word magazine. You see, it's a lot easier to just say fatemag.com. You can check their online section, find what's being published there, and also see what's in the current issue and previous issues of the magazine. Now, I know it's one feature you have from month to month is all the new material plus one article from a classic or historical issue. How do you make those selections? Well, there's, there's uh, two or three of us that read through the old issue and just find something that's either timely or um, has stood the test of time. And I think that's one of the cool things about fate, because from 50 years ago, the stories are still good. People still uh, still like them, still enjoy them. They, they still have relevance today. So we try to choose those stories that, that are meaningful historically or... Or timeless. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of famous people that have been involved with fate. And, like who? Oh, like Mark Twain, for instance. He had a lot really? of psychic experiences in his life. A little-known fact about Mark Twain. In fact, we've, he was on the cover of our magazine a couple of years ago, the psychic side of Mark Twain. And, uh, yes, he had some strange experiences with this woman. He would, like, like fall into this kind of an altered state of sleep, and then he would see this this beautiful young girl through many lifetimes and uh, she would die and then all of a sudden a few minutes had passed and he'd he'd be back in the now but for many many years in his life he had this recurring visions of this uh, uh, dream lover or a, a girlfriend or wife from a past lifetime and they had many different environments and where, where she would die or just disappear on him in different cultures and he also wow. had a lot of ideas he had uh, ESP, just naturally, too, that he was very, very gifted. I think a lot of creative people tune into information from the other world, like Mozart. How could he write that music when he was that young? Well, do they know they're doing that, though, or is it just... No, 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 but some people are more open to it than others. Well, we have to also realize that Mark Twain had a... Well, he had a real interest in, I won't say fringe science, but one of the things that we mentioned on the show was that he was very close friends with Nikola Tesla, which a lot of people don't realize, the, the, really the father of electricity. Twain used to spend a lot of time in Tesla's workshop and was fascinated by all the work Tesla was doing. So it's strange how Twain's name comes up again in the context of paranormal stuff. Fascinating. I don't think most people know about that in terms of Mark Twain's life. Ellen Keller's, too. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I think they, they were traveled in the same social circles, I guess. But, yes, I, I don't remember now. I'd have to look at that article. Because we read, like, 100 articles a month, so it's hard to keep the, oh. the details of them all. But, yeah, I think she, uh, she saw him psychically very clearly when, when she met him and, and spoke to him and <laughs> kind of gave him a psychic greeting almost. They had to be incredibly intuitive, not being able to hear or see yeah, how did it develop her other senses to compensate for that? Mm -hmm. You'd think she would have had finely honed psychic abilities. That's interesting. Phyllis, you find that some people try to put things over on you. They send stories that are clearly fake or... Oh, are... yes. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you tell? <laughs> Years of practice <laughs> of trying to... We, we've gotten scammed a few times. We had, uh, usually we don't accept articles from prisoners. 
and this this one uh, writer had his girlfriend or wife or something send the article, so it was always her addresses. But then someone else pointed out that it was a prisoner. We thought, oh no, we were scammed. I mean, the, the story was probably valid, but we just we just have a policy of not uh, publishing stories that are written by by prisoners for credibility issues. Is that uh, what that yeah. is? Yeah, 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 and just ethics, I guess. Yeah. Because we have to assume that those who were prisoners for whatever reason might have had real experiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Now, to what extent do you try to actually verify these things? I know it's hard. If a person says, I saw a ghost, how do you verify that unless you're there? But what do you do? The basic heart uh, essence of the magazine is true mystic experiences and my proof of survival. And those are, are people's personal experience of losing a loved one. And there's kind of a chill factor that we get when we get those stories. It just it just gives you goosebumps and or, or it makes you almost feel like crying because the sincerity of these people comes through. So it's, it's the true. goosebump factor and the emotional factor that helps you decide whether it's true or not. Sometimes, yes. Okay. And and, and having having been there for instance, I, I, my greatest sympathies are with uh, Dr. Greer for losing his mother. That's one of the hardest things in the world to have happen. My mother uh, collapsed and had a stroke here in my house back in 93, and she subsequently died. She never regained consciousness um, mm. and died like eight or nine days later. And she collapsed. <laughs> There's a vortex downstairs in my house, too, that people can see. But anyway, she died, or she had her stroke in that room. And then in the next room downstairs at the time, because I didn't have fate then, I had like a, all a TV viewing room and a, and a sofa. And I was sitting there watching TV, and uh, she died on a full moon. And a month later, or 28 days later, she came walking out of that room, and she manifested to me. And, I mean, it was just it was a very profound experience. I, I actually saw her. But I was still grieving so much then that I was I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't accept it. And since then, she has manifested uh, a few other times. One one time, for instance, I was lying in my bedroom and uh, I woke up and here was my mother, my grandmother, and my aunt, who are all in spirit. And uh, my mother said, "Well, I just bought you know, ma and sis to show them your house." That was you know they called her mother called her ma the old Norwegian way, and and sis was my aunt's nickname. She said, I just brought my sis to show them your house. I said, okay. I just rolled over and went back to sleep. It was like, no big deal. Okay. You accepted this as a normal thing. Oh, yeah. It was totally comfortable because it was it was her. I mean, I saw her just, just very clearly. And I saw my, my grandmother and I saw my aunt clearly. What about the theory on the part of some people that sometimes a creature or an entity will materialize as someone you know, but they're not? There's someone with an evil intent. I think if a person is sensitive, that you could you could you could feel a, a bad a bad feeling, a bad chill, or a creepy, scary feeling. But when when a relative manifests or, or a loved one, it's just it's a really nice feeling. It's just like oh, it, it makes you want to cry, but in a good way. Like, so your intuition sort of knows. You can differentiate between. It's really. I mean, that really boils down to intuition. You you, you intuit whether or not. This is a positive energy, because if it were a negative energy, you would instantly feel those hairs on the back of your neck stand up. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
Speaking of intuition, I divine this. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, joined by Phyllis Scaldi, the publisher of Fate Magazine. Remember, your fate awaits. <laughs> They've been around for 50. How can a magazine? How many magazines, by the way, Phyllis, have lasted as long? I realize you've gone through several ownerships and everything, but that's true with a lot of parts of the publishing industry. Those original Ziff Davis magazines, like Amazing Stories, the first science fiction magazine, it's had over the years several incarnations. It has been discontinued, reactivated, etc. So a lot of magazines go through this kind of revolution every so often. And that's another point, too. Having taken over this property, having the full management responsibilities of this, have you done anything at all to make the 1950s version compared to the 21st century versions look different? Actually, we're we're attempting to have a more retro look because that seems to be very appealing rather than, I mean, it's not like a pulp magazine now. Some of the stories were pretty sensational when, when they first started because um, Ray, Ray Palmer liked that little more far out stuff. So I guess the content of our stories, we try to make them more objective, more more critical, um, but still the look of the magazine hasn't changed much. It's still very old-fashioned, uh, simple format, simple design, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned that among the popular topics, perhaps the most popular topic is UFOs. So what do you think? Alien visitations, secret weapons from another dimension, what's your personal opinion? Well, I've had several personal experiences about them. I'm, I'm pretty much uh, critical of a lot of uh, UFO experiences. I'm, I'm critical of some abduction. That's not critical, just wary, I guess. Okay. Yeah. I just, uh, I mean, we look at everything with a very, very careful eye when we do UFO articles. Yeah. Definitely have visitations. I, I definitely think they're here. I definitely think they're watching us. I mean, I've, I've seen spacecraft in the sky. My family has, before I was even hardly born up in North Dakota, they would see strange things. And this predates any kind of sophisticated military craft or, um, you know, satellites or anything like that. So, yeah, I, d I definitely think they're, they're around. Mm. And you've seen them. Can you tell us any particular experiences we'd like to oh. chew well, the fat sure. about? <laughs> well, just a simple, simple things. Mother and I were coming home from town. I was probably, again, five or six years old, real small. And we're talking 50-some years ago. These are all gravel roads, so she stops the car on the gravel road. We get out and look, and here's this light in the sky kind of kind of skimming around, and all. we watched it for several minutes, and poof, zoom, it's gone, just takes off, like, like a, um, horizontally. So it's not like it would have been a falling star or a meteorite that would have been coming straight down. But this was moving back and forth, like, like in, on purpose, and then poof, it, it just swoops away. Any other experiences that seem as compelling? Well, this was told to me by my, my, my family. My older brothers and my mother and father were driving back to our farm from Devil's Lake, North Dakota. That's a creepy town, too. Devil's Lake. Devil's Lake? Yeah. The, the, the name is creepy. Yes, it is. There's some strange things that happen there. The lake is rising, 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 and they can't do anything about it. But, but anyway, they were driving home, and actually they were driving on this... Um, a state highway, paved highway, which was 
pretty rare back then, and this light was hovering over their car for probably 10 miles. And to the day they died, both one of my, one of my parents said that it was a uh, green light and the other one said it was an orange light. They were they were arguing all that time about, uh, about what it was. And my brother saw it, so four of them, four of them were seeing it in this probably old uh, kind of 40s vehicle. So it was a, was a, a primitive time. And it, it just stayed over and was watching their watching the car for uh, quite a few miles. There were, there were strange things. One time there was a, a school program at our, our tiny little uh, small town school and there were some lights outside of the small town and everybody piled in their cars and drove out there to see it. So it was meant for you to publish Right Magazine. It was definitely fit. Phyllis, I have a question about the readership of the magazine. Uh, You mentioned that you had kept the magazine with this sort of retro look. I mean, actually noticing that the logo of the magazine uh, of the word fate really hasn't changed much in these 50 years. Do you find that um, there's a young readership for the magazine? Are, are the same people who have been reading it been the same audience all along, or are, are, are you finding that younger people are interested and are motivated? And along those same lines, are younger people writing into you to tell you about experiences? Yes, we have uh, stories from, from young people, especially the true mystic experiences and my proof of survival kind of personal stories, because obviously a lot of younger readers don't have the sophistication and the objectivity to write about uh, or the personal experiences to write about other articles. But yes, yes, we definitely have young people writing in, and we'd like to have a, a section in the magazine kind of for teens or preteens that would uh, appeal to them. Now, we still have this situation where most people in this country Number one, believe the UFOs are real. Mm-hmm. Number two, believe the government is hiding the truth. So what do you think? Is the government hiding the truth or just as confused as everybody else as to what they really are? Both. Okay. Both? I think they're confused. <laughs> well, that we know. Well, <laughs> but a lot, about a lot of things, not just that. <laughs> yes, totally agree. But oh, and I definitely think they're covering up anything that they have. It's it's I don't know. It's a power trip or something, or they're scared to to lose their the, the central power, so they want to keep anything that they know away from the general public. But have they come over to the offices of Fate Magazine and said, Phyllis, we think that maybe you should lay off some of this stuff? Uh, no, not yet. Anyway. How about um, international incidents, Phyllis? I mean, and, and also I guess along the same lines. Do you have an international readership? And yes, we do. We have faith. We have subscribers all over the world: uh, the Far East, uh, Africa, all over Europe, Japan, China, pretty much Israel. It, it, any country you mention, we just about uh, really can find a number of subscribers there. Do you find a difference? In the experiences people report because of their cultural background, their cultural differences. It just depends on how well they speak the language. If they're, if English is a second language, then they have uh, a little more difficulty expressing themselves. But, but no, it's, uh, it's kind of the same all over the world. We also have a very older readership, too, that have been extremely loyal. Pretty much when folks subscribe to fate, they maintain their subscription until they can't see or they are deceased, until they pass over into the spirit world. It's really a delight. We have many people that are in their 90s still subscribing. Mm. And they said that's the last thing that they give up. We have readers, middle-aged ones, say that they get their magazine. That's the first thing that they do is, is read all of it. They, they don't put it down until they finish it. 
And it sounds like this is your attitude about publishing it as well, Phyllis. It sounds like this is something you plan on doing for the for the rest of your life. Is that true? Oh, sure, because it's like play. It's not work. Well, that's the secret to a happy life, I think, Jane. Sure, sure. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, you never know what's going to happen next. We're happy doing the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we have a few more moments to spend with Phyllis Scaldi, the publisher of Fate Magazine, the one in charge, the Grand Master. The chief. I'm the one that empties the waste baskets. That's right. <laughs> and you make lunch for the employees. Yes, I do. Yep, I make lunch every day, or they wouldn't be working here. That's one of the perks they get. Really. In the backyard. Uh, but also, you might mention, or or uh, I will, that um, folks can get a copy of Fate Magazine for only three dollars from our website if they want to check it out. For those who are not familiar with the magazine, or to see what. What kind of mischief we're up to recently? Hmm, that's less than a Big Mac these days, isn't it? Exactly, fewer calories and takes a lot, lot longer to read it. Than right, you know, you take, oh. take the Big Mac, and I'll tell you about this, David. You give up on the Big Mac okay. at ten minutes, you spend eating it, and then you gain fifty pounds or something. But if you instead buy a copy of Fate magazine, it fills you with knowledge and insight, and it makes you understand hopefully a little bit more about the wonders of the universe something that a fast food meal will never do what do you think and this is something that maybe we'll start getting to the wrap-up point in a moment but what do you think are the most impressive stories that have come your way ufos good question proof of survival whatever well i I think it has more validity, whatever the experience touches on, if it, if it deals with personal happening. This happened to me. Instead of, I heard about this, and this is the way it is, and this is the truth. I think it's much, much more effective and profound if this is, this is what I saw, this happened to me. It's, it's, uh, it was terrifying, it was frightening, it was wonderful. However, if it happens to you, then it has that, that mark of, uh, of the truth and of being real. I mean, for instance, we had like uh, one article recently, a phone call from an alien. I mean, what would you think? Remember Mothman, John Keel, when he was investing that, that in uh, Point Pleasant, he ripped the phone out of the wall in his hotel, and they still called him. Somebody still called him up, and he, this creepy, deep voice was talking to him. That that just makes you, I don't know, run and hide or something, but it, it definitely, I think, has more, more effect than than not. Makes your skin crawl. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Just made me kind of shiver. Well, that was something that Keel got involved with quite extensively in those years. Now, of course, he's semi-retired, I guess. He does not want to do radio shows. 
No. No, you say radio, and he hangs up the phone. I know, I know. He's a, he's a wonderful uh, curmudgeon, but what a font of knowledge when you can get him on the phone. Mm. Yeah, he was, that was really creepy. <laughs> and then we, we, recently we had a story about never cross an elf, like if, if you do bad things or, or don't respect the elf kingdom, then they can destroy construction, anything. I mean, it's incredible the power that those little minute uh, beings have. Destroy construction? You mean like make the building fall down or something? Yeah, yeah. They were try they were, uh, this, this happened in Europe, but they were, they were going to construct this big building, and, and it was right on a, like a sacred site of fairy, fairy realm or something, and uh, the people, the local people said, hey, you, you know, you better pay homage to the, the elves, uh, the resident elves here, ask them permission. No. Well, anyway, they tried to erect their foundation and, and the supports of the building, and it fell down like over and over again. And finally, they threw in the towel and said, okay, and, then, and they did their little ritual and, and asked for uh, permission and respect from the elves. And then, then the construction proceeded just fine. So, oh, yeah, they have, they have a lot of power, those little guys. And it, it looks like that article is written by our old friend Brad Steiger, Gene. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> what a small world. Small world. Ah, boom, boom. No pun intended. Again. We had another one about fairies, about uh, having personal experiences to visit the fairy realm. That this woman who uh, lives here in the cities and she paints fairies. And, I mean, she's actually seen things. We have several people who have been lucky enough to see nature spirits. I myself have, have had that experience, not fairies, but the larger entities, nature spirits. So, Phyllis, I mean, just just to be, you know, just to sort of be the scientist here for a moment. I mean, at what point do we take these experiences and say, okay, there, there's some percentage, like you were talking about UFO encounters, there's some percentage of these experiences that, I don't want to say fabricated, but are largely created by the human mind, which is capable of so much without any kind of external stimulus happening. I mean, can we assume safely that there is some majority defined as 51% or more, some majority of these experiences that do originate in the subconscious, in the psyche, that, that are sort of projections of people's fears and desires versus being a truly you know, externally manifested episode? I mean, is it, and again, I'm not trying to be harsh or anything, but I just have to believe, like with UFO encounters, which, as I've talked about on the show, I mean, I've I've had some very fairly major UFO encounters. I think it's our fifth episode. My brother and I talk about this incredible UFO sighting that we were part of in, in Caracas, Venezuela, that thousands of people witnessed. And not just, you know, lights in the sky, but a huge cigar-shaped ship with discs coming out of it and the whole thing vanishing. I mean, we, we saw this. Maybe, Gene and Phyllis, I need to write this up for Fate Magazine. It sounds like a perfect venue for this. So, I mean, that was not a manifestation of our psyches. That was something that really happened. But can we assume that some majority of Phyllis are indeed that, they're, that they are people's internal thoughts being projected? Oh, definitely. I, I totally agree that, uh, like I said, we reject probably two-thirds or three-fourths of the articles that we receive because they just, they're somebody's imagination. Mm-hmm. But there is, there is some germ of truth in, in many of the articles that we all uh, seem to be impressed by. Oh, there's three, of, three editors that read the articles and either the reputation of the writer or just feels like a genuine experienced or genuine information. My last question to you, Phyllis, how do we gain more legitimacy 
for this field, a field which has been largely sidelined and marginalized and which people sort of approach with a sense that, you know, this is all nonsense. How, how do we all endeavor to to get more legitimacy, to, to pull this out of being sidelined or marginalized and to make people understand that there are truly things about this universe that we really don't comprehend? Well, that's an, an interesting and complex question. Of course, there's no accreditation for being a psychic, if you will, if, if someone who has paranormal experiences. Anybody can say that they're a psychic. So there's no, like, you go to college to become a teacher. You have to pass tests. You have There's criteria that you have to do to, you know, to become a professional in any field. But, but in, in this weird paranormal field, there's very few um, studies or certifications or right. leveling of the field. I mean, now they have all the ghost-busting equipment for determining spirits, which is interesting. And I also think that it's, it's kind of the control of our society, our culture, that they have downplayed, they have negated the intuitive side of people. Left brain robots. Yeah, but at the same time, of course, like in our country, there's been a tremendous rise in fundamentalist Christianity and in uh, you know the like the the whole notion of intelligent design, which really is a faith-based initiative. It's got nothing to do with science or objectivity. It's about people's belief systems. So it's kind of this weird schizophrenia going on where yeah, I think it's fear and control that uh, controls yeah. that fundamentalist movement. It's kind of sad that in one in one way the what I consider to be legitimate paranormal stuff is being marginalized while what I think about as you know mainstream religion being almost fringy paranormal belief systems that's taking center stage it's kind of sad to me but that's right, indeed very, the case there's very little in the bible that you can that can be authenticated I mean there's so many conflicting stories and so many different religions uh, yeah we had a guest come on say that basically you couldn't find any proof for the existence of Jesus anywhere that was really in any way objective or scientific that you know this one uh, our friend Ken Thomas who really believes that uh, Jesus was completely made up i mean to me it's it's ironic and it's frustrating that there's so much attention and effort put towards again what i consider to be really fringy paranormal stuff when in fact people you know look down upon things like ufo's something that has manifested in contemporary times and there have been a good number of people legitimate people who have had what appear to be legitimate sightings these people are somehow marginalized but if you say that you know jesus came to you in a dream then somehow now you've been imbued with some special ability or some special insight. It, it's frustrating to me, and it's one of the reasons, Phyllis, that you know Gene and I are doing the Paracast. It's because we're trying to, in, in the way, whatever limited way we can, try to get at some real hard truth about these things and move this outside of the realm of the belief system into the realm of actual understanding. Well, I applaud you, gentlemen, for your for your efforts because yes, we need that, and I think it's a grassroots kind of movement that the paranormal is appreciated and respected for what it is. Yeah. Hey, one more time, tell us about that special deal on getting a sample copy of Fate magazine. Can, anyone can either call our 800 number for a special copy of Fate for $3, or they can visit our website, Fate, F-A-T-E-M-A-G dot com, and for $3, we'll send uh, the most recent issue of the magazine. And a subscription is thirty-one ninety-five a year, 12 issues. Hmm. Very, very reasonable. <laughs> Thank you very much, Phyllis Galdi, publisher of Fate magazine for joining us on this episode of the Paracast. Thank you.
You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. She, she seemed like a very nice gal. I think it's fascinating that she had all these really early experiences with ghosts. What helped <laughs> certainly encourage her in the direction of her life that she would end up at five years of age seeing her first ghost and then progressing to a point where she's in her 50s and she takes up her fake magazine. Yeah, I mean, who'd, who'd have thunk it? Now, meanwhile, if that house is still in the family, Gene, I, I think we need to take a, we need to take a trip there. We need to go spend uh, spend a night or two. We need so we can get really scared. <laughs> well, speak for yourself, David. We need to go to Minnesota and find out what's going on. Well, uh, yeah. Well, I, look, you wouldn't be scared if something like that happened if you were in the room and there was this luminous figure in the doorway. I mean, I got to tell you, it would freak me out, Gene. I, I mean, come on. I envision. This scene in my mind that's inspired by Ghostbusters. Okay, if you remember the scene in the movie Ghostbusters with Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and Harold Ramis, and they go into this library that's being haunted, and right. they see this ghost and have no clue how to interact with it because they've been dealing with theories, and the case of Bill Murray just using it as a scam to get girls. Right. Didn't believe any of this stuff at all. Suddenly, suddenly, he they see the reality, try to interact with the creature, and soon they're running out of the garage in a total state of fear. In the paranormal experiences I've had in my life, Gene, I mean... The one recurring theme was intense fear. I have to tell you, this is not... It, when people say to me, boy, I wish I could have an experience like this, my response to them is that you've never experienced fear like this. It's just that, that moment when your brain says to you, I don't know what the heck your eyes are seeing right now, but we have no frame of reference for this. And, you know, the natural response to this is to run that's that's a healthy response, I think. If people people talk about, oh, you know, I wish I could see a ghost or UFO. I would try to talk with it, or I would try to communicate with it. And uh, I submit that in that experience, the last thing you'd be wanting to do is start a conversation. You'd actually be thinking, how, how do I get out of here? You've entered another dimension. You've entered you are about to enter another dimension a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. 
Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. So Bill, we've heard so many different stories about the Philadelphia Experiment, and you were telling me that you have another variation about what happened. The conventional wisdom being that this is an experiment in invisibility that went wrong during the early part of World War II. And now we're talking about maybe a different aspect. Of course, that would have been an urban legend. Is this a legend, too? No. I mean, the story that uh, Corso told me, and this is basically a story that he received from Admiral Arleigh Burke, who was one of the very important naval commanders in World War II. And, of course, obviously, Arleigh Burke is the name of a destroyer now of an Aegis warship. Arleigh Burke told him the story because Corso had asked about what was the real deal behind the Philadelphia experiment. And so Arleigh Burke had said that in toward the end of World War II, the Navy was trying to find a way to protect U.S. ships from the Japanese mines in the home waters. This is before we won the Battle of Okinawa and obviously before Truman made the decision to drop the atomic bomb. And we were contemplating very heavy casualties uh, from the invasion of the Japanese home islands. And the waters were so heavily mined with a special kind of a mine that the U.S. was, the Navy was just contemplating huge casualties. The detonator was triggered by the, magne the, uh, the magnetic waves around the hull. And if you know anything about ships, metal ships, wooden, any ships that are driven by electricity, by electric power, you know that a boat is really a floating battery. That's a boat. It's got an electromagnetic wave around the hull, and in the water, water is a great uh, conductor. And so the Navy wanted to find a way to demagnetize the hulls so they wouldn't set the proximity fuses off on the underwater mines. Their master plan was to use degaussers, which have been around ever since, obviously, magnetic tape, was to use degaussers to demagnetize the hulls. Now, imagine the power it takes to degauss the hull of a warship. It's not like putting a, a, a strip of mylar tape through a degausser. It's, it takes an amazing amount of power. But they were experimenting. So the answer, Gene, is yes to your question that you posed about was this invisibility. It was invisibility. It was a cloaking device. But it wasn't invisibility to light. It was invisibility to the magnetic detonation fuses on the Japanese mines. That's the kind of invisibility that it was. So in other words, this was a very early version of an attempt at stealth, right? Electromagnetic stealth. You're in the Paracast, and we're talking to William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine, the co-author of The Day After Roswell. Let me, all right, now, what confirmation is there that this event, this experiment, truly occurred? 
the confirmation actually comes from Admiral Arleigh Burke himself. And this is one of those odd stories where Corso would raise this and use the words Philadelphia experiment, and you'd see these UFO types go crazy. Oh, it was a hoax. Oh, it was a fraud. Al Bielik, the Montauk experiment. This shows that Corso's a fraud. And at Roswell in 1997, Corso began... In answer to a question, I mean, he didn't stand up and say, let me tell you about the Philadelphia Experiment. He was asked about the Philadelphia Experiment by one of the reporters. And as he began to tell the story, a bunch of UFO types got very upset that Corso was talking about it and walked out. So here's a situation where people are asking Corso about this. And by the time Corso actually told the story, he explained that Arlie Burke told him the story all the way back in the 1960s. So this wasn't a World War II story. This was Corso being explained what had happened uh, by the admiral who who was in charge of that um, as of 1944 when the incident allegedly took place. And Corso explained this is what Arlie Burke told him because he'd asked Arlie Burke because of all the mystique about the Philadelphia experiment during the 1950s and early 60s. So how did we get this invisibility aspect? Was it a matter of modern misinterpretation from stealth to invisibility or what? No, this was actually, Gene, this was so basic and actually so funny. It wasn't funny for the two crew members who were lost, but, I mean, it, it just shows how these myths can grow. The Eldridge was selected as a test vessel, and there were crew members on the Eldridge when she went through the degausser. The problem was the energy was, and this was a day, by the way, I'll, I'll just pause, it was a foggy-ish day in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And if you know the Philadelphia Navy Yard, it's in the Delaware River. It's obviously, the Delaware River is very wide at this point by the Philadelphia Seaport. So this isn't like a narrow little river. It's big, big river, big Navy Yard, kind of like San Diego. So the Eldridge goes through the degaussers and the heat radiated from the electricity from these devices was so intense, it melted parts of the hull. And it melted two crew members into the hull. Now, this was a secret experiment. You, I mean, I, I can't stress enough that the one thing the Navy didn't want the Japanese to know was that the Navy was experimenting with demagnetizing the ship's hulls because they were assembling the fleet that would invade the Japanese home waters. So he didn't want to telegraph the punch to the Japanese. So obviously the one thing you don't want to do is let the newspapers grab a hold of this and say, two crew members fused a hull in Navy test for invasion of Japanese home waters. So it's a secret. <laughs> Now, what was Carl Allen's connection with the Philadelphia Experiment? This is where the story goes from reality to myth. So it's a foggy day. It's top secret. The Navy's not going to say anything. When these two crew members were fused into the hull, the Navy ordered the Eldridge, don't pass go, don't collect $200, keep steaming, steamed out of the Delaware River, down into the Delaware Bay, down into the Intracoastal Waterway, all the way down to Norfolk, Virginia, where you're going to get a refit. So in other words, they put the Eldridge under wraps on her way down to Norfolk, Virginia. She disappeared into the fog of Delaware Bay. Hence, for anybody watching from a distance, the Eldridge seemed to explode in light 
disappear into the fog, and keep on going. Carl Allen was a crew member on one of the other vessels. Now, the other sailors knew what happened. There was a lot of myth. And Carl Allen, oh, maybe 10 or so years after the event, allegedly went to the science fiction writer Ray Bradbury under the guise of this person called Carlos Allende and told him the story of how the Eldridge disappeared in time and two crew members went forward in time as a science fiction story. And so that's how the myth began. And it was a myth. It was a total myth, not a hoax, but a myth, a science fiction story about how these crew members were flashed forward in time from the Eldridge. Thus you had the book, The Philadelphia Experiment, then you had two motion pictures. And that's really the story. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast. We are speaking live on the spot at his home in California. We're talking to William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine. We're trying to separate the fantasy and the reality behind the Philadelphia Experiment. So basically, Carl Allen takes a factual story of an attempt to perfect some kind of stealth technology in World War II, and he extrapolates from that to build some kind of science fiction scenario. That's exactly what happened, and it's been one of the most successful science fiction stories coming out of World War II ever. Okay, what about this Al Bielik aspect of it? Is And this Montauk project and all these other side issues, how did they come about? Well, some 20 years later, Al Bielik, who is a very unique, some would say fanciful individual, told the story of how indeed he lived out in Montauk, Long Island. Now Montauk is another strange and mysterious place. There are strange waters, there are shipwrecks. If you've ever been there, it is on the one hand very bleak, very, uh, very except for the seacoast, very Wuthering Heights-like. And on the other hand, um, it was the area in which the Navy tested lots of different communications mechanisms. Montauk and Amagansett and all those villages on the southern coast, on, it's called the South Fork of Long Island, there were places where, they, where uh, in World War I, Germans tried to invade. In World War II, there were German, there were Nazi expeditions. U-boats were off the coast. A U-boat actually made its way into Long Island Sound. This is a story for another day with a missile launching ramp on the U-boat. So very mysterious spot. Al Bielik extrapolated on this science fiction story by saying he, Al Bielik, was the incarnation of one of the sailors that was flashed forward in time from 1944 from the deck of the Eldridge when the first time travel experiments took place in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. So Al Bielik had this kind of reciprocal identity with one of the sailors 
and um, talked about the Montauk experiment. And the Montauk experiment was this communications portal opened up cross time between the secret base on Montauk, Long Island, and the Eldridge in the Philadelphia Navy Yard in 1944. And Bielek was that person. Okay, so basically that's also some kind of legend that he invented to lend more credence to this entire affair? You don't know how much Al Bielek actually believed and how much Al Bielek actually contrived, if he contrived anything. You always have to trust the fact that there are individuals who may fully believe their stories. These are not hoaxers. These are not confabulators. They're not embellishers. They're folks who are fully invested in their own story. And so you can say what you want to about them. They believe it. And so there are folks, and I, who've, I've spoken to Al on the phone, there are folks who fully believe it, and I believe that Al actually himself believes this. Back to World War II and the attempt to perfect some sort of stealth technology. What happened to it? Where did it go? Stealth technology is alive and well to this very day. Um, the stealth technology we're talking about was, as I said, it's electronic stealth. It was trying to make the ship's hull disappear from the um, proximity sensors on an underwater floating mine. So it, if that worked in World War II, uh, it certainly worked in the Korean War with mined waters, and now there are very different kinds of mines, but stealth technology has been kind of the holy grail in uh, defending warships and plant bombers, the B-2 bomber and fighters. It's been the holy grail since easily since World War II, and even now we're working with various kinds of light-diffusing technologies which will effectively create an invisible plane or warship or tank. It's almost like the cloaking device that the Klingons or the Romulans used in Star Trek, and now we're hearing that science is trying to find ways to make this happen sometime in the near future. Well, in, in Star Trek lore, the um, Federation came up with a, a policy decision to be unlike the Romulans, they would not develop a cloaking device. It wasn't as though the Romulans were so far ahead. It was that, Star, it was that the Federation decided not to do it. Except, and this is a, a famous Star Trek, where in Riker's first posting as an executive officer, and I, I, I don't have my encyclopedia in front of me, and I don't remember the uh, starship, but in one of his first commands, a starship trying to use cloaking technology, a Philadelphia Experiment episode of Star Trek, actually materialized in an asteroid, and the ship became fused with the asteroid, trapping crew members. And Riker was sworn to secrecy, and in one of the episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, Riker's former captain, under the cloak of secrecy from the Federation, from Starfleet, uh, um, is posted to the Enterprise to go back to that very spot, and it turns out to be a test of loyalty between Picard and the other captain for Will Riker, and Will Riker has to come to terms with his own deception of his captain, and uh, that's the story of the Philadelphia Experiment, Star Trek style. <laughs> Interesting how we take 
a legitimate experiment from World War II, and it becomes one of the great enigmas in the UFO business. Rather unfortunate, though, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yes, it is. We've taken a lot of time. There are those who, to this very day, fully believe in the Philadelphia experiment that it took place. Um, but when you read the story, when you read what Ray Bradbury has to say and read Kevin Randall's description of it, you realize that it's just another one of those mini stories. Now, how this becomes important, though, in later lore, and it does, is that Morris K. Jessup wrote a book, I guess, uh, UFOs Are Real, one of the many UFOs Are Real books. The Case for the UFO. That's right. Morris K. Jessup writes this book. In the book, The Case for UFO, he writes about the Philadelphia Experiment. Now, the Navy, the Office of Naval Intelligence, gets very upset about this. So the ONI tasks a study of the Philadelphia Experiment, another investigation into it, to these two naval officers, one of whom is a commander, George Hoover. George Hoover also has a strange history, because George Hoover was on a, Navy, a naval vessel uh, in December 1941, when they spot the Japanese fleet off Pearl Harbor, and they radio back to Pearl. Pearl gets instructions from Washington, do nothing. So Hoover is one of the people who knew the Japanese were going to attack Pearl, who let the naval um, command know, the Navy chief of staff, um, and Washington said, stand down. So that adds a whole Pearl Harbor conspiracy, which we can get to again on another day. But George Hoover writes about stealth technology and time travel for the Navy. George Hoover now goes into naval lore because he gets picked up by Ivan T. Sanderson, another famous writer who writes about George Hoover, the Philadelphia Experiment, and time travel. George Hoover goes on to become, to, to amass one of the greatest UFO libraries. He lived, he lived very near here, one of the great UFO libraries of all time, and not only invented the heads-up cockpit display, but he invents stealth technology for naval submarines, and in the 1950s is Walt Disney's consultant for the Man in Space series on Walt Disney World. Now that's George Hoover. <laughs> From circle to circle and back again. Thank you very much. Bill Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine. Thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you, Gino. It's my pleasure. I will talk to you soon. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.